Good morning. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, glad to have you here with us this morning. Uh, parents of elementary school age kids, if you want to go ahead and dismiss um, your kids now to Aletheia Junior, their teachers will be at the back uh, door and they would love to take them off uh, to that time. Uh, if this is your first time with us or you have not uh, been around since we studied our uh, study in the book of John and you would like a scripture journal, just raise your hand. We have some volunteers that would love to pass one of these out to you. Uh, we give these out every time we study a book of the Bible together. We want you to be able to take notes and follow along with us. Uh, we only ask that you would bring it back with you each Sunday, which actually leads me to my next announcement. Some of you guys keep leaving your scripture journals here and you don't put your name in it. And Michelle is very, very disappointed in you. So if you have lost your scripture journal, you may stop by the welcome desk and receive it. Um, I'm just gonna be honest, I saw it, it's a guy. There's no way that handwriting belongs to a lady. So sir, wherever you're, if you've lost your scripture journal, it is at the welcome desk. Uh, please write your name in these so that we could get these back to you if you leave them around here. We'd love to get them back to you so that you can have the notes that you uh, took. Um, but free gift, would love for you to have these. Thanks for being here uh, this morning. Uh, I've got a question I want to pose to you guys uh, to think through kind of as we open up our, our time in God's Word this morning. I want you just to pause and think for a minute. If, if you're one of those people that can't do that without closing your eyes, go ahead and close your eyes and just think for a second. But I want you to just think about this answer. You don't need to shout it out or whatever else, but just think, why, why are you here this morning? Not like, why do you exist, but why are you in this room this morning? Why are you at Aletheia Church? There's a number of things you could be doing on a Sunday morning. Why are you here this morning? I asked that question because a few years ago, there was a Pew Research study done uh, that sought to kind of answer the question of why do, why do Americans attend church services? They were, they were, you know, Pew and Barna tend to be uh, research groups that do a lot of research on like the, the religious and spiritual makeup of Americans. And they were trying to kind of answer and wrestle with this question of why do Americans attend church? And they kind of came up with four primary reasons why most Americans attend church services on a Sunday morning. Uh, the primary reason, the number one answer, was to become closer to God. Uh, number two was so that their children would have a moral foundation. The third one was that they go to church to make them a better person. And the fourth one was for comfort in, in times of trouble or sorrow. And I, as a pastor, I would concur that this is one of the, the primary things I've seen over the years of why people tend to attend church uh, and I think it's probably an accurate and true reflection of why people go to church. Uh, but the question I want you to think about for a second is, is this the reason why God wants us to gather? Are these four reasons what God had in mind for his church in the first place? I think we can see some of the beauty and grace of God even in understanding the mindset of why the average American attends church in the first place. And here's what I mean by that. That so often we can approach God with improper motives and reasons and God still blesses and meets his people. See, the church is supposed to gather for three reasons, right? One for worship, 
two for fellowship with other saints, and three for mission. That's it. We, you, the church exists for no other reason. If you're here for a concert, boom, wrong reason, right? If you're here to find a spouse, boom, wrong reason. Although I would submit it's probably a better place than a lot of the other options, right? But the scripture reveals to us that the primary reason why the church exists is for the worship of God, for the fellowship of the saints, and for the advancement of the kingdom and the gospel. And those four reasons that were listed above are certainly byproducts or things that we might experience as believers. But as so often happens in life, if we start doing things with the wrong motivation behind them, we lose the heart of why we started something in the first place. You know, for example, right, a, a common thing that people have improper motives around is marriage, right? We're taught at a young age by Disney movies, romantic comedies, and all the other filth that's out there, right? That, that marriage exists to fulfill you and help you find your lost soulmate. And if you really take that to its logical conclusion, if you marry somebody for those reasons, you are putting an impossible burden on them. Right? If I marry my wife because she's going to meet all of my needs and, and come into all the places where I feel like there's a void in my life or to be my other half, whenever she doesn't meet those qualifications or those, those needs, I'm broken. And not only that, I've put an impossible task upon her that she'll never live up to. And in the same way, people do this with church. They come to church to be closer to God, but if they don't feel closer to God, then it's the church's fault that morning. Or they want their children to have a strong moral foundation, and if their kids, like most teenagers, end up going a little crazy, it becomes the church's fault. Or to make them a better person. Church has never made somebody a better person, I can assure you of that. At least it hasn't for me or for comfort in times of trouble and sorrow, what happens if the pain you're experiencing is so grievous that maybe there is no comfort right away? And the beauty is, is as we, if we approach God with the wrong motives or reasons, God still chooses to love and pursue you, whether your motives are right or not. And we see that in our text this morning with Jesus' first followers. Many of them approach him with improper motives or wrong reasons. And as they begin to follow him, they start seeing him for who he truly is. He loves them. He teaches them. He leads them. And what they experience is a radical transformation that often had nothing to do with the reason why they started following him in the first place. And so what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see what following Jesus is really like. What being a disciple of Christ really entails. And in that, we're going to see that come through three invitations. Jesus is going to meet three kind of separate groups of disciples. And in those meetings... We're going to see what following Jesus is really like, and we're going to see an invitation of what walking with Jesus can really be like and what it can really entail. We're going to see what it's like to really come and see Jesus for who he really is and experience him. 
We're going to be invited to come and be transformed by Him and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be invited to come and be fully known by God and all that that entails. So let's go ahead and look at verses 35 through 39 of John chapter 1 together. It says, The next day John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And you guys remember last week, that is a similar title to what John the Baptist preached last week when he first encountered Jesus. And then it says this, The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. So here kind of in this first section, we see two men begin to follow Jesus. And I'm going to go ahead and spoil who it is. One is Andrew, who is Simon Peter's brother. Yes, that Peter. That, that guy that you read about throughout Scripture who is kind of a, a, a hero but also a hot mess, his, his brother. And then the other disciples actually not said to us, although I believe it is the author of this gospel, John, because John often throughout this gospel will be present in a story, but he will not reveal that it is him. So he'll call it the disciple that he'll call whoever the disciple is in that particular instance, the disciple who Jesus loved, or he'll do like he does here and not share any information. Just like, yeah, Andrew and some other guy, he was there. It's like, come on, dude, we know it's you. Thank you. Like this humility is great. We get it, but it's you. And so it, it says here that these two begin to follow Jesus, but I want you to notice why. It's based on not anything that Jesus has done, but who? The testimony of John the Baptist. See, Andrew and John were disciples of John the Baptist. And as they had spent time with John the Baptist, one of the things, and I mentioned this last week, John's ministry was completely centered around proclaiming the coming of the Messiah and preparing people for him. And so, John, uh, John and Andrew have spent all this time with John. They've been out in the wilderness. They've experienced his ministry. They've seen people's lives transformed. They've seen people come and repent and be baptized. And they're sitting there underneath the teaching of John. And once Jesus shows up and uh, John proclaims that Jesus is the guy that he's been saying is going to come, they decide based upon the testimony of John the Baptist that they're going to start following Jesus. Jesus has not done anything up until this point to have caught or grabbed their attention. And yet they are interested in following him because of John's testimony. I think it would be important for us to just pause here for a moment and tell you that if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, it is possible for followers of Christ to have that same type of impact on others. That if we live in such a way that is loving and attractive and testify that our life is that way because of Jesus Christ and what he's done, people will start to follow simply out of curiosity. You know, I shared some of my testimony with you guys last week. 
And you'll notice one of the first things the Lord used to draw me to himself was not a study of the scripture, was not some profound experience of Jesus in my life. No, it was the transformation of my sister before my eyes. And as I saw her experience the transformation that comes through knowing Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, that same testimony of what she was experiencing started speaking to me. The same way that John's testimony spoke to Andrew and John. And this is likely all that their initial interest is, curiosity. Well, wait a minute, this guy that we've followed who has been a great teacher to us, who has led us closer to God, he's saying that this guy's even greater. How could that be? Let's start following him. And I think if we're honest, and if we were sitting here and we had Andrew and John on stage, we asked them like about their motives and if that was the proper motivation for following Jesus, they'd probably say like, yeah, on the, on the front end, probably not. And if you notice, Jesus' response to, to them following him is, is pretty interesting because Jesus is well aware that up until this point, he hasn't necessarily done anything to call people to follow him. And so as they begin to follow him, Jesus turns to them and he just asks this question, what are you seeking? See, Jesus knows that they aren't following him because they know who he is that they know he's God's son, the promised Messiah, the one who's going to rescue and redeem the world and deliver them from their sins. See, what we see here is that people did and still do begin to follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. We'll see throughout the gospel of John that there's all sorts of reasons why people start following him. They start following him because they think he's gonna be some military leader who's gonna liberate them from Roman rule and oppression They because they want his power and they wanna have that same level of power and control in their own lives. We'll see that people follow him simply because they just wanna be released from um, like the, the various diseases and, and troubles of their life. That There's all sorts of motivations that aren't centered around the main reason, which is Jesus Christ is God's son in the flesh. And because he is, he's worthy of their worship, their attention, and their devotion. And these same two disciples start to follow Jesus with the same improper motives and notice Jesus' response. He gives them the space to come and follow anyway. And he asks them the question so that they will consider why they're following him in the first place. She's like, what are you here for? Why are you following me? What are you seeking? What do you want? And what Jesus is doing by responding to them in this way is the same thing he does to every one of us in this room this morning. He's inviting them to begin to follow him, to experience who he really is without pretense. And here's how I know that. Because when he asks them this question, what are you seeking? They respond with rabbi, meaning they don't know who he is. They just think he's some teacher. Where are you staying? Like they clearly, they, 
I love this response. They, they so don't know why they're following him that they're fully honest. Uh, we don't know where he's staying. Like this, this is like the best non-answer of all time. Hey, we want to follow you. Why? Why do you want to follow us? Where are you staying? Logically, that answer makes no sense. But basically, they're like, yeah, we're not really sure. Could we hang out with you for a while? We're, we're not even sure why we're here. Could we come hang out with you? And Jesus' response to them is, come and you will see. Come and stay with me. Follow me. He doesn't demand that they have to fully know him, that they have to have the right theological answers to the question as to why he's there or to know who he truly is. No, he invites them simply to follow him, knowing that as they follow him, they will fully see and experience that he's truly God's son in the flesh. And then they will know who he is. He gives them an invitation. Come, see, experience. and You will know who I am. And in this passage this morning, there are seven titles given to Jesus that reveal the truth of who he really is. But as we study the Gospel of John, what we're going to see is that it takes a lifetime for Jesus' disciples to fully understand the full weight behind these titles. Right here in this little section, they call him rabbi, which just means simply teacher and is used for all sorts of religious leaders throughout the Jewish world. But what they'll come to find out is Jesus is the true rabbi and teacher of Israel, come to have taught God's people who Yahweh truly is and what it means to follow him. We'll see Peter call him the Messiah, which was a term used by the Israelites to, for God's anointed prophet, priest, and king. And what we'll see is that the Israelites didn't fully know what that meant, but once they begin to follow Jesus, they realize what God's Messiah truly comes to do. He's called the Lamb of God, which meant he was the atoning sacrifice who would satisfy God's wrath, that he was the Passover lamb meant to appease the Father, something the Israelites couldn't even possibly fathom at this point in time. He's called later the one of whom Moses spoke, meaning he's the prophet who would speak God's words to his people and lead them to truly follow him in a way that Moses could not. He's called the Son of God, not just as a son of someone who follows God, but he truly is the Son of God, divine, there from the beginning, as John told us earlier in chapter 1. He's called the King of Israel because he's the true leader of God's people and a good king. And he's called the Son of Man because this is Jesus' title for himself throughout this gospel. Go with me to Daniel chapter 7. I want you to see where Jesus gets this term. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus invites Andrew and John to come and follow him. And as they follow him, they will experience that he is all of these titles and so much more. And Jesus invites each and every one of us to just come. You know, one of the things I thought was true as a kid growing up, nominally going to church and spending time in the church, was that Christians had to have their life together and they had to be following Jesus exactly as he said. And there had to be all these different kind of hoops to jump through to be a Christian. And we see right off the bat here that Jesus invites each and every person to come and experience him. And as they follow him, they see him for who he truly is. And friends, let me just say this to you. This takes a lifetime to live out. I'm still now 16 years in, more captured by the beauty of Jesus than I was 16 years ago. Because there's constantly something new kind of just being shown to me about the power and the magnitude and the work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus and his grace and his mercy and his love doesn't demand anything of his followers simply just to come and see and experience who he really is. So this first invitation, the one given to Andrew and John, but really to all of his disciples is just come and see, experience, right? And could you imagine the, the, the confidence that this displays too? Like Jesus is so confident in who he is, knowing that he's God's son, the anointed Messiah, that he knows that Andrew and John in following him will figure out why they're there. It's like, I'm not gonna answer your question. Just come follow me, you'll get the answer. Some of you might be here this morning, you're like, I don't know why I'm here. It's okay. Your heavenly father does. And all of us are invited to seek after Jesus. And that question will be answered for us. And the second thing I want you to notice is that Jesus invites us not only to come and experience and see him, but he invites us to come and be transformed. In verses 40 through 42, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, goes to Peter and he invites Peter to come and meet Jesus. So you see this disciple who spent just a few hours with Jesus the night before, so excited about what he experienced in just that first night walking with Jesus that he runs to Peter and he's like, dude, you got, bro, you got to come. Like this, this is the guy. We found him. And Peter comes and to see and figure out who this guy is, possibly to learn. I think what we know about Peter through his story and his testimony is that Peter loves power and attention. And so maybe this is an opportunity to get some of that and to follow this guy. So he shows up and Jesus calls Peter and immediately calls him to transformation. 
long before Peter ever experiences the transformation, Jesus calls him to it. Right? Notice what Jesus does here. It says, he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, if you know anything about names in Hebrew and Jewish culture, right? Names were often given to actually describe somebody or who they were. Who they were. So, so for example, right, in this instance, he calls him Simon Bar-Jonah in Hebrew, which means Simon, son of jo- John. Excuse me, si- Simon Bar-John. So Simon, the son of John. So he knows that Simon's identity is wrapped up in his family history. Oh, you're Simon, the son of John. That's who you are. That's how we know who you are. You're John's son. Right? Some of you guys in this room have had your identity wrapped up in somebody else before. Right? So often that can be the case for us. And this man, Simon, has his identity fully wrapped up in John. And yet Jesus looks at him and says, I'm not going to call you that anymore. Your name is now Cephas. Or in the Greek, Peter which means rock. Simon, your family, your father, your past does not define you. I do. And you are going to follow me. And in following me, I'm going to transform you into a rock. And you will be a pillar of my church. You will be tough and you will lead. And guys, I promise that I'm telling you the truth when I say this. As Peter stands there before Jesus, he is not yet a rock. Far from it. Right? He's going to later on in the ministry of Jesus proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah and not just that he's the Messiah, but actually proclaim his divinity. And you're going to see this beautiful moment where Jesus says yes. And not, not even two verses later, he's going to begin to rebuke Jesus, the one he just claimed was God, and tell him, hey, I think you've got the whole dying on the cross thing wrong. And then Jesus is going to say, get behind me, Satan, to him. The same man who, when he first arrives to Jesus, is called a rock tries to correct his own king, God, and Savior. Later on, during the Passion Week, he's going to stand by Jesus and proclaim that he'd be willing to lay down his life for Jesus. And Jesus says, nah, dude. Before this night's out, you're going to deny me three times. And uh, Peter, man, he's just the best. Maybe I relate with him because I'm so much like him. He's just like, Nice try, Jesus, but nah, like, I'd die for you. And Jesus is like, okay, before you hear the rooster crow three times, you're going to deny me. And sure enough, three separate times that night after Jesus' arrest, Peter denies that he even knows who Jesus is. And when he hears the rooster crow, he's no rock. And the Gospels tell us that he leaves in sorrow over what he's done. And yet, Jesus invites him in. 
tells him to follow and says, I will transform you into a rock. And guess what? Jesus is crucified, raised again, and Peter becomes an absolute pillar of the early church. He still to this day has preached the greatest sermon ever preached in Acts chapter 2. Fully unveiling the glory of who Jesus is to the world around him when some 40 days prior, he wouldn't even admit to a little girl outside of the council meeting that he even knew who Jesus was. He boldly proclaims on the steps of the temple that Jesus is the Messiah and God's Son because he was radically transformed by the Holy Spirit and the grace and love of Jesus Christ. So Jesus invites all of us to this same transformation. And if you don't believe me, just look at what the Apostle Paul, a murderer and persecutor of Christians, says to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, the promise of following Jesus is as we follow Him, we experience more of Him. And as we experience more of Him, we know more deeply who He is. We become more convinced that He is God's promised Messiah, the Son of God in the flesh. And as we walk with Him, Jesus, through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit will transform His followers. I've said this from the stage before, and I'll say it again. If you do not want to change, do not follow Jesus. You will be transformed if you truly follow him. It's impossible. Guys, I'm just telling you, as someone that has experienced a lot of transformation in his life and still experiences transformation, sometimes I don't even want to. It's like, I kind of like that part about me. My wife might not, my kids might not, but I kind of like it. It's safe. I know it. God in his mercy is transforming us from one degree of glory to another through the power and work of the Holy Spirit because that's what following Jesus does. It transforms the followers of Christ. So Jesus invites us invites you to come, experience, see who he truly is, to follow him, and in following him, knowing that you will be transformed. And then I love this last story. This is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. It's odd. Most people don't realize this. But verses 43 through 49. Right, Jesus goes on to this next town, and, and it says that he arrives in, the, in, in this next city, starting in verse 43. He's in Galilee, this region, and it says that he calls Philip. He says, hey, Philip, come, come follow me. And Philip's like, okay, cool. And so Philip starts following Jesus, and then Philip immediately goes to this guy he knows named Nathaniel. Guys, Nathaniel is awesome. 
right? So Philip goes up to Nathaniel. And he's like, hey, come on, we, f- we found the Messiah. Come follow him. And Nathaniel's like, yeah, that dude's from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of that place? Like, Nathaniel is like the most honest skeptic of all time. Because in Racism has followed the human race for thousands of years, and you see it fully on display even amongst the Jews, amongst their own people. They're like, yeah, Nazareth? place is kind of weird. It's kind of like in this city. You'll be like, can anything good come out of Tallahassee? The FSU grads are like just seething right now in the room. I assure you, by the way, good things can come out of Tallahassee, guys. But, but Nathaniel's like, dude, there is no way that anything good can come out of Nazareth. <laughs> you, want, you think this guy's the Messiah? Nice try. You've been duped. And Nathaniel's just kind of sitting there like, ah, I don't think so. And Philip's like, well, just come see. What do you have to lose? Right? You think he's a loser? Like, just, just come see. Right? I know there's been tons of false messiahs over the last several hundred years. And they, like, he couldn't possibly come from Nazareth. But just come anyway. Just come see, what do you have to lose? And so Nathaniel's like, fine. And as Nathaniel walks up to Jesus, Jesus looks at Nathaniel and says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And you're like, whoa, whoa, what is going on here? And what Jesus is saying to to Nathaniel, he's like, I see no pretense in you. You're genuinely just here to figure out who I am. You're not coming to get something. You don't have false motives. You maybe even, and rightly said to Philip, you think I'm full of it. You're a jerk, but an honest jerk. And Nathaniel, in true skeptic fashion, looks at him and says, how do you know this about me? It's like, who do you think you are? And Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, I want you to pause and think about that for just a second, because it seems kind of like not a big deal. But Nathaniel's sitting under this fig tree, and Philip comes up and calls him. And as he's walking towards Jesus, Jesus immediately makes this statement to him, meaning, had Jesus talked to Philip yet to know anything about their encounter? No. Right? So Nathaniel's kind of like, Wait a minute, you knew I was under the fig tree? And then the light bulb clicks on. Oh, that guy heard what I said about him and Nazareth. Oops. Right, it's all been laid out right in front of him. And Nathaniel immediately, on the spot, boom, transformation. He goes from skeptic to disciple. He calls Jesus rabbi, he calls him son of God, and he calls him king of Israel. He doesn't even fully know what he's saying yet, but he's calling Jesus all these things. And Jesus' response to Nathaniel is basically, you ain't seen nothing yet. Just, Just wait. What I want you to see is that what Nathaniel is experiencing in this moment is something radical that all of us know, need, and want, but sometimes don't fully embrace and understand. See, Jesus shows Nathaniel that if he wants to follow him and experience him and know him, 
that it will mean that he's fully known, but also fully loved. See, Nathaniel came as a vocal skeptic of Jesus. As he shows up, he finds the Savior of the world, and he finds that that Savior knows everything about him, including his racist tendencies with Nazareth. And as Nathaniel winds up realizing that God knows him fully, it's simultaneously terrifying and liberating. It's terrifying because to be fully known is dangerous. The Messiah, God's own son, knows you're a racist, brother. Like he knows. And he knows what you said about him. But it's also liberating because Jesus doesn't send him away. Doesn't yell at him. Doesn't belittle him or demean him. He just tells him, you're going to see far greater than that. And in that moment, Nathaniel experiences a depth of love that he has never before experienced in his life. Being fully loved by the God of the universe, despite his sin and wickedness. Tim Keller puts it this way when he's talking about marriage, and he said, he said marriage is a a shadow or a reflection of the gospel that a husband and wife covenant and promise to love one another and it's to mirror or display God's love for us. That a husband and wife covenant to love and forgive one another despite sin and brokenness in their relationship. And he says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. And then I want you to notice this next part because he's describing what being loved by God is like. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our own self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Guys, in that moment, as Nathaniel meets Jesus and Jesus reveals to him that he knows everything about him, Nathaniel experiences a depth of love that only God can provide you. And God provides it to each and every one of us. Just look at the promise of what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And remember, Paul is uniquely qualified to be able to describe to us what it means to be known and loved by God. The man who persecuted and murdered Christians early on meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Jesus forgives him, loves him, and calls him as an apostle. And look at what he says to the church at Rome, starting in verse 8. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me translate that for you. You can know that God fully knows you and fully loves you because of the cross. 
Guys, this is why theology matters. Because when you're in seasons of doubt or you are in your own sin and brokenness and struggling to understand if God could possibly love you, you need to preach to yourself. It's not about how you feel in that moment. It's the reality of whether Jesus Christ really did live, die, and rise again to save you and forgive you. And if The crucifixion and the resurrection is a historical fact. God has displayed his love for you that you are fully known and fully loved. And there is no greater love that this world has to offer than the invitation of Jesus to Nathaniel and us to be fully known by him and to be fully loved by him. So why are you here this morning? What are you seeking? Maybe it's things you shouldn't be, false things, idols, sex, drugs, money, control, power, the list is endless. Here's here's just what I'll tell you about those things as somebody that ran after them for 20 years. They'll fail you. They make terrible gods. They promise you happiness, comfort, joy, and peace. But all they bring is slavery. They will demand you continue to serve them and they keep you enslaved and they give you just enough of a taste to keep the chain on you. Some of you guys are like, nah, I'm good. I don't, I don't struggle with those things, right? And yet you're running after religion. Morality, theological arrogance, hypocrisy, things that give the appearance of loving God and following God, but bring none of the true experience of a child of God. And here's what Jesus says to all of us. Come and see. Whether it's for the first time or whether you've been walking with Jesus for decades, the invitation is always the same. Come and see. See and experience. Know who I really am. God's own son in the flesh who died in your place for the forgiveness of sins to be transformed like Peter from a weakling to a rock to be known fully known and yet loved all are invited to come and see like Andrew like John like Peter like Philip, like Nathaniel. It doesn't matter if you're a religious disciple like Andrew and John or a rude skeptic like Nathaniel. God's invitation through Jesus is the same. Come and be known by me. Come and be loved by me. Come and be transformed by me. Come and see Jesus. And with that, just like Philip, just like Andrew 
If you're a disciple of Jesus here this morning, that's the message you take out into the world. Not come and see me, not come and see my church or my theological position. No, you invite people. We all have the privilege of inviting people to come and see Jesus. And allow him, through the power of his word, through the work of the Holy Spirit, to reveal himself to each and every one of us. We come and see this Jesus because he is worthy.